Hi, friends. It's Garth Williams from the CBAC. Today, we have a brand new episode of Unexpected Leader to share. But first, I've got to say, wow, what an unexpected season this has been. When the COVID-19 pandemic began to take hold in our part of the world, we recognized the wave of decision-making and information was overwhelming for many CBAC leaders. As a result, we didn't want to distract from the current context or to be tone deaf. And we didn't want the stories of these young leaders to get lost in the sea of content being shared. So we decided we'd take a break. And since mid-March, we experienced the weight of the pandemic, a series of tragic events in Nova Scotia, and then most recently, the ugly reality of racism, injustice, and prejudice against Black, Indigenous, and people of color in our neighborhoods. The wave of revolution and protest sparked by George Floyd's murder in the U.S. remind us of the ongoing need to address systemic racism in our power structures, society, and church culture. And it calls each of us as followers of Jesus to self-examine, identify, and confess the sin racism so that we can be part of the solution and not the problem. More than ever, our world and our churches need leaders who are Christ-centered and responsive to his call on their lives. And telling stories of God's invitation is also something we believe to be crucial for this moment. Starting today, we'll be releasing three of our final episodes of this season in which we heard from young emerging leaders in our CBAC family. Let's take time to listen and honor the gift of their stories of God's invitation on their lives. We look forward to a new season this fall where we have conversations to explore what it's like to lead in unexpected times. As always, thank you for listening. This season, we've chosen to have conversations with our younger leaders about their unexpected journeys in ministry. We're excited to share with you their stories of how God has called and used them in the lives of the people they walk with. The world that is so natural to them seems so far removed from the one in which I started out in. Their wisdom and experience is so helpful for our families of churches, and by sharing their stories, we can all move toward being better leaders and followers of Jesus in this moment in time whether we ourselves are new to the journey or have been on it for a while. Thanks for listening in. We want to welcome you to uh, this edition of The Unexpected Leader. I'm joined today with my co-host, Lois Mitchell. Lois, it's good to have you. Good to be here again, McGarth. Lois and I have the pleasure of uh, being joined by Micah Knowles. Micah, welcome. Hey, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Micah, just as we get started, just so those who are listening can have a sense of uh, who you are and where you fit in, maybe you can just give us a sense of uh, where you're serving currently in ministry. Yeah, I'm serving uh, at the Journey Church in Moncton. I'm the associate pastor there, uh, which means I wear a couple different hats. I'm the youth pastor, which uh, is a great ministry to be involved with. We have about 60 to 80 kids coming out every week. A young adult program, I oversee that, and I'm the associate, so whatever needs done, I guess I do about 35% of the preaching. And yeah, there's just a lot of different things that I, that I do at Journey, I guess. Michael, one of the questions that we've been asking uh, those who join us on the podcast is in and around when they were in high school and what was going on for them and were they planning at that stage to be involved in vocational ministry or not? So what about for you? If you take us back to the high school years, was ministry something that was uh, on the radar for you? Yeah, I mean, like many of my glory years were in high school, right? Like everybody 
Everybody's doing their best in high school. No, not at all. I, I was not interested in vocational ministry or any kind of ministry, anything really to do with God uh, when I was in high school. I had girls' sports and uh, parties on the, on the mind, and I had zero interest in church stuff. So I wasn't interested in, in being a pastor is definitely the, is the short way to say it, yeah. Just curious because your dad's a pastor. Yes. Um, so even though it wasn't on your radar in the sense of an attraction, like something you thought you would be drawn to, do you think part of the reason you didn't want to be a pastor was because of the family connection? Yeah, I can remember uh, being in, I think, grade 10, right? And I remember somebody coming up to me and saying, what are you going to be taking at Crandall? And I, I was so frustrated by that question because I wanted to decide my own future, as every kid does. And I think people look to me to, to follow in my father's footsteps. My dad was a third generation pastor. I'm now a fourth generation pastor. It seemed like the logical thing to do. And uh, I did not like that. I did not want to follow his lead. I wanted to be my own person. And perhaps some of my uh, frustration and uh, rebellion came out of that. I don't really know per se, but I definitely did not want to follow his lead. I wanted to do my own thing. So how did, how did things turn around? Most turnarounds, I would say, that I've experienced in my life and seen people go through don't happen easy. I, I, uh, I moved out when I was 16 years old, so that was uh, a very unique experience. You're out there on, on your own, like a rolling stone. And uh, I spent some time just doing my own thing, roaming the streets and, and uh, doing whatever a 16-year-old can find himself up to. Uh, my dad and my family moved to Moncton, New Brunswick, while I stayed back in the valley, the Annapolis Valley. And... Uh, so uh, after about a six to eight month period of being a prodigal son kind of idea, I came home without any money or anything to my name. And it was the only thing I had left to do. So when I came back, I came back ready to have a new story um, and ready to have some questions answered. I was deeply concerned about certain things, uh, namely whether God was real and what do I do about it? You know, if God is real, what do I do about it? That was a huge question that was plaguing my mind. And I had always thought that God was real. And I think people generally do think God is real, whether they want anything to do with him. And that was certainly true for me. I've, I've often said people don't want to talk about God because they know that it's important. And that was, you know, my struggle through my teenage years. Was I going to open myself up to his leading? Was I going to be interested in if he was real and, and not just have a cookie cutter faith based on whatever my parents believed or whatever my denomination believed or whatever my church believed, but what, what was I going to come up with um, through my studying, through my learning and my experience? Yeah. In that six to eight month period when you were out kind of on your own, were there key moments, uh, you know, like the, the story of the prodigal son when he's feeding the pigs and eating the pig's food was kind of the turning point for him. Did you have that kind of a turning point? Oh, yeah. Uh, I had a couple. Uh, depending on how spiritual or how intense we want to get, I could go into a variety of them. I, I would say when it came to prodigal son type pigsty moments, yeah, I, I, was, I, can rem I was in a jail cell one time. That was pretty difficult for me. And I was going, what on earth am I doing here, God? And uh, I didn't really find him angry with me. I found him kind of laughing at me more than anything. This is it, Mike. You don't want to be back here. Uh, I can remember one time um, walking through the woods, and I was saying my prayers, and I was basically off the rails at that point. And I, and I, uh, I said, if you can get me out of this one, we'll have a conversation, right? I don't know how many people have prayed that, that prayer, but I can remember him basically you know, very few people have heard an audible voice is, is my experience. And I did not, but I heard a very clear, this is the direction you're going, whether you like it or not, you're going to go to Moncton 
and uh, we're going to work things out from there. So I knew I was I had all intentions to go to Acadia and I was accepted and looking to play sports at Acadia and everything in between. And uh, I, I somehow knew from that point on that I would not be at Acadia in the fall, that I was going to be at Monc- in Moncton, like God said. I couldn't get away from that. Mike, as you were going through the, that time, that six to eight month time frame, were there people there who were supporting you and walking alongside of you and, and maybe just kind of giving you that space to process that all through? Yeah, uh, I would say there was two groups of people. The first group would be people that said, you know, this guy is an idiot and I'm done with him. And they stopped caring and had no role in my life from that point on. There's still people like that that I haven't connected with since. And then there was other groups of people who saw something in me, saw potential in me, knew that I had something to give to this world that cared about me. And uh, you know, that was very encouraging. And a lot of those people said they were praying for me, which was, of course, not important to me. I didn't care about prayer and I didn't think that it really made much of a difference, but there was people that prayed for me uh, all through my uh, all through my time struggling. Uh, people that opened up their homes to me, uh, John Dixon from New Minus Baptist cared about me and, and made a difference, and and a lot of different people who just who would buy me books, Christian books. I I never wanted to stop learning, and I uh, I was always studying and considering big questions throughout any point in my life, and to have people who. Who were, re-encur- who were encouraging me and, and uh, reassuring me that I had, you know, a future was, was, really, was really encouraging. How does this impact you in terms of working with young adults, high school kids, as they kind of process through all that they're working through, like you did at that stage? How, how does this affect you in your ministry to them? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'd say to answer your question, Garth, it's given me a certain measure of sympathy and a certain measure of care that I want to give. I don't want to be the kind of person that gives up on people. I want to be the kind of person that helps see people through, especially when you see someone who you think is, you know, intelligent, leadership abilities, and everybody's got qualities. But when you see someone who's deeply struggling with things that they can do to, to provide for the kingdom or society, culture, whatever those things may be, to care about those people, I've always wanted to be that kind of guy. The other thing I would say is, along with being compassionate, is just finding people uh, who no one cares about and saying, you still matter, you still have something to give. So pick up this story, coming back to Moncton. As a parent, I'm just curious about how that coming home, um, how that uh, how that all went with your parents. Was it a prodigal son returning celebration? I would say... Uh, everybody was a little hesitant to see where it would go. They were very, like, it's it's funny to think about now in hindsight, because this is, what, eight years ago now, maybe, so it's been a long time to, to consider these types of things, but they were skeptical, probably, as to what would happen and, and how things would go, but they encouraged me in the right directions. I wanted to go to Acadia. My dad came to me and sat in my room and said, uh, I'll help pay your way if you go to Crandall, and that was a pretty sweet deal. And I did not want to go to Crandall. But he said, if you choose to go to this school, it will be a different kind of story. And uh, they, they often did things like that. I remember, you know, in the middle of that season, my mom offered me 100 bucks to read through the Bible. It was a great deal. You know, I like to read. And uh, to read through the Bible for 100 bucks, that was no problem. So, yeah, they did little things like that to push me in the right direction. So you did go to Crandall? Yes, I did go to Crandall. Crandall was a great turnaround point for me. I, w- I was very confused. I went in to play sports, and uh, I figured anywhere that there's sports, I can find people that are at least a little bit like me. 
And at Crandall, I found a variety of people who, you know, I would say loved for the sake of loving. They just cared about me. Uh, one of those people is now my wife, and I, I could not understand how she was so kind. And I met a lot of people like that. And to all the people who say that, you know, what your greatest testimony or your greatest evangelism is your, is your kindness. You're the only Bible someone will ever read, kind of taboo. Uh, jokey things like that but those things were very true for me when I got to Crandall and I met people like that 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 just loved me and uh, really had no good reason to. And so when you got to Crandall did you enroll in in courses leading to ministry? When I got to Crandall I still was not interested in being a pastor and it still it took a long time for that but as I I studied business my first year and I was working towards uh, what I thought would set me up for law by the time my second year rolled around and I had deep, more deeply considered, uh, for me, if God was real, what do I do about it meant, you know, everything, right? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't foresee myself being a lawyer if God was real. It seemed like too small of a goal to just uh, make a lot of money or be a lawyer or be successful in business. Around my second year, I, I switched to the BTH at Acadia, partnership with Crandall, and I I started going towards uh, courses that would set me up better to for a life in ministry or a life that would uh, complement God's kingdom in any way I could. So, Michael, was there a, a building up as you processed all of that through and you come to that second year and you enter into uh, the BTH program? Is it just kind of building up and leading in your mind to kind of say ministry is the next logical step for me? And if it was to do at any point in time, step back and kind of go, well, this was unexpected. It seemed that as soon as I opened that door, the floodgates came in. So um, I had opportunities to speak to, you know, tens, dozens, hundreds of people almost instantly. And I was I was up kind of sharing not not really my story because I didn't want that to to uh, define me in any way. But I was telling people about God all over the Maritimes at different events and churches and God, as soon as I was really open to his leading, started giving me opportunities to make a difference, which I was encouraged by. It wasn't just going to be a, a slow crawl. It, it, was, it was as soon as God was, I was ready, God was ready. So he was, he was waiting for me, it seemed. I don't want us to skip over the part because you've, you've stressed it quite a bit about the question, if God is real, then what? And so at some point you became sure? I think I was sure, but it's always been fascinating to me to think that people can avoid such tremendous questions. And people can. I'm convinced of it. People can absolve themselves of thinking about God in some crazy way. And I, and I already said people don't think, want to talk about God because they think it isn't important. They don't want to talk about God because they know it's important. Uh, people get very defensive when you bring up such questions. For all the people that think God is irrelevant... They don't want to talk about that because they know that it, it has connotations to their life. It can make a difference, and it will make a difference if they start uncovering those those big, deep questions. People can use all, all number of different things to uh, occupy themselves, whether it be money or cars, clothes, and fame or popularity, whatever those things would be, to, to get away from the biggest questions about life. I mean, uh, just, for instance, death is, you know, 10 out of 10 people die, but... How many people think about death on an average average day or live as if they're going to die? You know, very, very few. Take us to when you started uh, in church ministry, local church context. When we, we start out, none of us have a normal 
I would say, start to ministry in some regards. So what was your scenario? How did you get involved in doing local church ministry? When I was at Crandall, I I guess one of the biggest things was uh, there was an on-campus church that a friend of mine, Nick Devine, who's currently serving in Woodstock, had started, and I had been a helper uh, in seeing that happen his first year. And then when when Nick left, I kind of took over Soma. And Soma was an on-campus church on, on Crandall's campus, and that was really my first kick at the can of trying to do anything ministry. I'd served in the summers at Highfield Baptist Church and running, you know, a VBS and, you know, helping helping in kids' ministry. It's usually the per- first place that people send you, right, is kids' ministry, and that was what I was doing. And I found kids' ministry very valuable. Uh, in those summers, I also was doing Athletes in Action all over the Maritimes, which was incredible. And uh, we saw a lot of kids become Christians through sports ministry. I'm convinced that those different mediums make a big difference. You know, kids who wouldn't otherwise come to a VBS program, they will come to a sports camp. And that was a great way to see God's uh, message get across the Maritimes for me. Anyway, to get back to Soma, I was really leading this ministry with no budget. We had a couple hundred dollars and uh, no real funding. I put together a team of about 15 or 16 people who were interested in helping with the church. And we had up to 200 people coming uh, to a non-funded, non-denominational church on Crandall's campus led by 20-year-olds. So I would consider that a big win. And we saw a lot of people preach their first sermons at uh, Soma. I think of uh, myself, Jeremy Vincent, you know, people like that, that had the opportunity to, you know, test the waters and get that first one out of the way, I guess you could say, at Soma Church. So that, that was my first big trial at ministry. So you came to Crandall reluctantly, and yet within, was that first year or second year you were leading? At Soma Church would have been my last year, my first okay. year. Okay, yeah. yeah, but you were pretty, it was a pretty quick turnaround, oh, yeah. Yeah. which I I highlight just because I think sometimes we, we look at people and we think, oh, you know, they're a long way from, you know, a, a walk with God or sort of a Christian life. And yeah, just to remind us how quickly people's lives can can just spin, like turn on a dime. Can we shift now and talk a little bit about uh, the cultural context out of which the youth are coming, that, that are coming now to journey and to be involved in the ministry that you're leading? What, what are some of the things, insights you have about the ways that they are coming into, into your ministry context? That's a great question. Youth, youth today and children in general, I mean, I made the kind of uh, quick, quick point to say, where do you put people first? You put them in children's ministry. But it seems often the things that we devalue are the most important things, right? Who gets the most say? Well, the older adults and the middle-aged adults who pay the bills. So they get a lot of say in a church culture um, because they're, they're paying for it, right? But uh, who is the most valuable people to a church, really? Is it the kids? Is it the youth? Well, I think the wisest of those older adults would say, yeah, it is. It is the young people. And I, and I appreciate that at Journey, that has been a, a sentiment shared by a lot of people. Um, over the fall, we raised $150,000 to support Next Generation Ministries, and, uh, and we've been investing that back into our kids. Kids are coming from a different circumstance than anybody else has come from. We live in a very polarized culture. Um, We live in a moral relativist culture. People aren't interested in God the way that they used to be, even though I can sit and say, oh yeah, you know, people are wondering about God and they're interested in these kinds of ultimate questions. Uh, They're not given the chance to explore those questions in the way that they used to. The church doesn't 
have the same kind of leadership that it used to in the community. And that's, you know, that's a scary idea. And, and I would say that even in many communities, the kinds of churches that we now have, you know, most people who are not churched would not readily fit into those kinds of churches, right? So that's a, that's a scary prospect. At the same time, you know, kids are coming in interested in God and, and kids are coming in with big questions in mind. They're looking for places to uh, have a safe place, not because necessarily all their homes are, are troubled or situations are troubled, but you know, high school is a weird spot. And when you're in a more relativist culture that's saying whatever you want to do goes and there's no ultimate truth and there's no truth at all. You know, people need something to cling to. They need values and they need uh, they need truth. And uh, to come to a church, uh, we we tackle big questions. Right. So we don't shy away from from dealing with big questions, because if we if we don't touch hot topics then we've done them a disservice. You know, if, if, if I'm going to share a message about David and Goliath on week one and a message about Noah the week on week two and Jonah then week three, not that those aren't great stories, but kids need to, to deal with what about sex? What about uh, homosexuality? What about, um, you know, the trials and temptations that I'm facing? You know, does God care about my struggle? And what about the problem of evil? You know, what about free will? And kids have the capacity to deal with these questions and they want to deal with those questions. So I want to give them an opportunity to uh, to explore them. Because of the, the stuff you've said about your own journey, the, the the role of big questions has been very prominent in your life. And I wonder, like, I, you know, the stories about sex or, you know, the kind of moral dilemmas, the hot topic issues, I, you know, I, I get that. I think most, most people would say, yeah, young people want to talk about those things. The question of evil, like those are diff- a different tier of questions. And do you think your own personality and your wrestling through those deeper questions has set you up in a way that you can draw some of those themes out of youth and in a way that's that's good? Like they want to talk about those. They just need to have opportunity to talk about them. Yeah, I would say that's true. Uh, for me, I mean, I'm, I'm always reading. I try to average about two books a week and I try to uh, steadily learn and experience and grow. So if I'm going to deal with such topics, I need to do so in a, a correct, uh, orthodox way. Christianity's always been countercultural. These kinds of topics, there is a Christian perspective on them. But at the same time, we need to consider all the angles and we need to consider how they relate to a, a, a kid's life, right? With all that in mind, I would say for me, it's been about learning. It's been about growing. And then it's it's been about facing things head on. It's not so much my experience. It's about my willingness to uh, help people in the best way that they need help. Right. Like it comes back to what I said about doing a disservice. Right. If more people tackled these big questions, then it would be it would be a lot better for the kids. You know, I get I get the youth a couple hours a week at youth group. And then however much I talk to them through the week, you know, there's a lot of hours in a week to only have two for me and one at church on Sunday morning, right? They spend a lot of hours at school learning about a lot of different things. And for me not to talk about uh, what God thinks of, you know, the things that are going on in the world would be wrong of me to not talk about it. I think sometimes we assume that youth aren't thinking all that much about important things. I think that's an assumption lots of people make. And and I don't know if this is a change, but I notice, like even from my grandkids, you know, like the kind of things that they're really interested in are at a different level, I think, than, you know, like my eight and 11 year old grandson, they're, they're watching infographic kind of 
YouTube talks all the time on a wide variety of issues. You know, and yet if we think we're going to send them to, to Sunday school and youth group to hear only the same old stories at the same level with no probing deeper to, you know, to get down to those really the huge questions. It's, it's missing an opportunity and, and probably worse than missing an opportunity. It's just really shutting off um, a whole stream of potential growth. Yeah. When, when I think of that question, Lois, I, I think, um, yeah, it's not that our young adults and children aren't thinking on deep, deep issues. The problem is that they're not finding a place to be able to have adults who lead in the discussion pointing all fingers at me, you can't see that as you're listening to this, but it's it's my generation, it's our generation that was never taught or trained how to wrestle with those big ideas or how to have that conversation, which just really kind of opens it up into, in this cultural moment, we don't know how to have healthy dialogue where we can disagree with one another or we can wrestle with concepts without drawing lines and being mad at the person because they don't think the same way we think. And so I for me, I, I feel that for that emerging generation or the existing generation, however you want to frame that, but for young adults and, and teens and children, we collectively have to learn to do a better job to create church to be a place of dialogue and not just a place of disseminating information that we're comfortable with, but it needs to be a place where we, we collectively as the body of Christ um, gather together to discuss important topics. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really valuable, Garth. And and at the same time, I would say, you know, faith faith at home is is very important. And you know, most parents have a hard time talking about these things with their kids because if they find out they don't believe what they believe, then it's frustrating and it's just awkward. You know, that can't be uh, a reality in today's world. You know, faith needs to be lived out at home. Big big questions and considerations need to happen at home. And like I said, I, I, I have a two-hour youth group and then whatever happens in between in a one-hour church service, right? So uh, the main battle goes on in the home and parents need to be equipped to, to answer those types of questions as well. Well, I mean, one of the things that are at stake is the issue of authenticity, right? I mean, there's such a desire in the cultural moment to have authenticity and to, to have that honesty that when there's a perception of you're just feeding me a line, maybe your actions don't match up to it, you lose the audience pretty quickly. And especially in the home, when kids are aware enough that mom and dad are saying A, but they're doing B. And so it, it creates that dissonance, uh, which leads just really to a bitter taste. Yeah, I would say there's very few things in today's cultural moment that um, young people value more than authenticity, and they can smell inauthenticity. They can smell it a mile away. And if the pastor doesn't believe what they're saying or the parent doesn't believe what they're saying, uh, you know, that that is a, a, a tragedy. But at the same time, you know, for kids to see a parent who truly lives out uh, God's love and, and believes it and, and is true to that and is, and is authentic in their love or a pastor that does that and speaks authentically and speaks um, with love every week, you know, that's a, that's a very, very valuable thing to have. Mike, I'm just wondering if there's, uh, in your mind, you know, we've talked about um, working with with uh, young adults and children and youth and just some of the resources that you kind of 
have benefited from. You've referenced that you've benefited from some writings and you read a fair bit. Can you think off the top of your head, um, maybe a, a resource or two that you would say uh, for those who are listening, if they're interested in engaging or re-engaging or stepping up their engagement with, with um, teens and young adults, what, what would some of those resources be? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, some of the most helpful things to examine, you know, given the future of the church, right? And and I, when I consider that, when I consider looking at the future and, and how to talk to, to kids and people, um, I, I often look to places like Portland, um, you know, that are facing issues that we will likely face 10 to 15 years from now. You know, the Atlantic Canada, where, we, where we're doing this uh, podcast right now, you know, is a very setback place in many in many communities, in many cities. It's not, it's not Portland. It's not Los Angeles. Uh, it's not London, England. So to s- look at what churches are doing in those places is very valuable to me. Uh, at the same time, just to give some specific resources, I, I like anything Francis Chan, anything Francis Chan does. Speaking of authenticity, you know, a uh, guy who loves, who loves the Lord and, and shows it in any time he speaks or writes. John Mark Comer, uh, speaking of Portland at Bridgetown Church, he's a he's a great guy, and I I soak up anything the Bible Project. Uh, I I think if if you're listening to this, and you haven't you haven't spent time watching Bible Project videos or listening to the Bible Project podcast, you need to you need to go to that resource right now and watch some videos. You know, we we because the world is so uh, interconnected, and because we have an information highway and an internet and a TV, like. Some of the best Christian resources we've seen in the last hundred years are coming out regularly today in what is now 2020. So we have we have the ability to get our hands on things like the Bible Project that people never used to be able to, and that's exciting. When you think about 30 years, say, down the road, how do you envision um, the local church? Are we calling young people to the to the church as it is now or an, or and or as it has been or are we calling them to a different thing altogether yeah that's a great question lois i mean 30 years in the future would be 2050 and 2050 is as far away as 1990 is and uh 1990 seems like yesterday to some uh and 2050 seems like a very far off reality but they're equally far from 2020 what the church will look like i'm not to I'm not able to prophesy. I think it's going to look very different. I think some churches are going to die and some churches need to die. As tragic and hard to say as that is, it's it's true. Uh, I think what it's going to take is it's going to take radical people who love Jesus with all their heart, who make a difference. Christianity 30 years from now is not going to be a passive, yeah, I go to church on Sunday and I love Jesus. Uh, it's great. Um, you know, but I that's my that's my one time that I connect. You know, average church attendance in 2019 or 2020 is often once a month, twice a month. You know, people are going to have to get very serious about their faith if if they're going to if they're going to be able to be Jesus followers in in the year 2050 because our world, our country is not moving in that direction it doesn't seem to me. We're becoming more increasingly relative uh, more relativist we're not we're not trending in that direction and the other thing i would say is i do see a lot of churches that are trying to live out a 1990 style church culture uh in 2020 and it won't work we're not we're not the church of yesterday we're the church of tomorrow so that's that i've been fascinated by the barna organization does a lot of interesting uh survey uh type 
work and one of the uh, it's been a few years ago but the work on the religious duns not the religious nuns but the religious duns people for whom faith has been very um important is still very important but you know who would say but i i just i i I, church isn't isn't nurturing me isn't feeding me so i'm taking my faith my vibrant faith but i'm taking it outside of the church um how do you think you know again asking you to prophesy a bit but how do you think the church might re-engage people that have have sort of self-defined themselves as being done with conventional religion will they not come back but will we go forward my hope is that we will continue to go forward, and I I know that at the end of the day, God wins, so that's always reassuring. But if I was to hypothesize, I would say that things are going to go small before they go big. They need to go to church, but in their opinions, they don't need to go to church. They can sit at home and watch videos uh, in their pajamas. Why go to church on Sunday? But people still need people, and they need human interaction. They need community, and that's what the church has been built off of is community. I think it will end up uh, further uh, concentrated in small groups, and those those small groups, 10 to 12 to 20 people, um, meeting in a house, meeting in a restaurant, meeting in a, a library to study the Bible, uh, to live life in community together, I think that will happen. And uh, they will live a deeper sense of family, maybe a big church ever could. And I mean, that's good, and I'm coming from a big church when I say that, but I think small groups are are something that's going to have to happen a lot more, and people will do that a lot more. Micah, we want to thank you for stopping by and joining us on this podcast. I really appreciate uh, your response, your honesty, and uh, the time's been good to have with you. I appreciate it. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. And for those of you who are listening, uh, whether you've downloaded this and uh, in your car or while you're walking, or maybe you're streaming this in your home, we want to thank you for taking the time to uh, listen to this podcast. So until next time, take care. We'll talk to you then. Hey, thanks again for listening. If there's someone you know who would be interested to listen to this podcast, please help us out and share it with them. And if you, yourself, or someone you know is experiencing a call or challenge from God to investigate what vocational ministry might look like, well, now is a good time to act on that. We invite you to go to yourcalling.ca and then reach out to us. You can reach Garth Williams by email at garth.williams at baptist-atlantic.ca. Again, that's garth.williams at baptist-atlantic.ca. Remember to take care of one another as you journey in this life. These are unexpected times. And a final note on the issue of racism, which we mentioned at the start of this episode. We also want to encourage you to listen to the voices of our brothers and sisters of color. Ask what the Holy Spirit wants to teach you in this time. Speak up when you hear or see racism happening in your family or friends or church or neighborhood and amplify the voice of the marginalized.